Well, hey, everybody. So great to see you. I know I say it each week, but whether you're here in the room or joining us online, we're honored to have you along for the ride. And as many of you know, we're in the middle of a series called Seasons that will take us right up through Christmas Eve. And in this series, what we're doing is exploring the six annual feasts that God gave to ancient Israel in order to help them remember the times that he had met with them in very special ways. And these feasts are described in detail for them and for us if we wanted to read it. Most of us don't because it's in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. But here are the feasts that God describes. First, Passover, First Fruits, Pentecost, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and tabernacles. Um, and as I've mentioned, as almost none of us here are Jewish, it may, might be fair to ask, why do we care about the Feast of Israel? And if that's what you're thinking, then you should know that the reason Christians have historically found the Jewish feast so fascinating is that the Hebrew word translated feast is mikra, and mikra can also be translated rehearsal. In other words, the Jewish holiday season is marked by celebrations designed not only to remind God's people of what he had done for them in the past, but also that would point them forward to what God would one day do, as it turns out, not just for them, but for the whole world. And in fact, this idea that Jesus sort of fulfilled the feasts of Israel is affirmed in the writings of an early pastor by the name of Paul. So he's writing to a group of non-Jewish Christians living in Greece who are facing tension from Jewish Christians because the non-Jewish Christians are not choosing to celebrate the Jewish feast. So here's what Paul writes to them. He says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival. So there you see it. He says a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. They are a shadow of the things that were past tense to come. The reality, however, he writes, is present tense found in Christ. Like Jesus, in a very real sense, fulfilled the feasts of Israel. Moreover, as it turns out, the Jewish feasts actually predicted aspects of Jesus' life and identity and mission hundreds of years before he was born in a little town called Oh, yeah, there you go. Bethlehem. Right, right, right. So just want to make sure you're awake. Now, with the rest of our time together today, what I want to do is show you how Jesus fulfilled another one of the Jewish feasts, this one called Pentecost. Just a little bit of background on Pentecost. It always takes place on the 50th day after the Feast of First Fruits, which we talked about last week. So if you missed that talk, you can catch up online. But here's how God instructs the children of Israel concerning Pentecost. He writes, he says, from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of wave offering, and you're like, yeah, without the context, that's why I don't read Leviticus. Yeah, I get it, right? That's first fruits. Count off seven full weeks, and then he goes on. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. And, and then as God goes on, he tells the people that along with the grain, they were to offer him, you ready? Seven male lambs one young bull, and two rams. Which, let's be honest, is a lot of livestock. Are you with me? Yeah. It, it, like This is an incredibly expensive list of things for God to ask the people to sacrifice. In fact, it was so expensive that it really could only reasonably be offered during a time of incredible blessing, which, as it turns out, was the point. Like Pentecost on the calendar marks both the end of the spring wheat harvest in Israel and the beginning of the barley 
harvest. It was a time of abundance when God commanded his people to celebrate his physical provision for them. And that's awesome, and that makes sense, but, but that's not all that's going on with Pentecost because well, many Jewish people, especially in the first century, had come to believe that 50 days also separated the day God rescued their ancestors from slavery in Egypt and the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And so consequently, the Feast of Pentecost was a feast of provision, not only God's physical provision for his people, but also the spiritual provision for them through the giving of the law. All that to say, Pentecost was a really big deal to Jewish people in the first century. In, in fact, it was one of the three times each year that God had instructed all of his people to gather in the city of Jerusalem to remember and to celebrate what he had done for them. And so consequently, each year, the city would have been filled to overflowing with Jewish people from all over the ancient world. People who, it's worth noting, would have been speaking all sorts of different languages. So hold on to that. It becomes super important later. Okay, so now to start to show you how Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Pentecost, we need to fast forward hundreds of years from when it was first introduced to a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. And just a helpful footnote, especially if you're new to church, many people don't realize it, but Jesus actually spent 40 days with his disciples following his resurrection in order to remind them of the lessons he had taught them before the crucifixion that, to be honest, they hadn't been paying attention to. But see, this is kind of handy. If your teacher dies and then comes back to life and then teaches you again, you lean in and take notes. Would you agree? Not a problem, right? So yeah, 40 days of preparing them. And so shortly before leaving them to declare the implications of the crucifixion and resurrection to the world, an early Jesus follower named Luke records that Jesus looks at his disciples and says to them something really interesting. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. So notice that one of the last things that Jesus tells his followers was to wait. And when he tells them to wait, it isn't really a suggestion like you should wait. It was an imperative, but just wait. Like this is something you have to do. So Jesus says to them, listen, before you go and help people understand what God has accomplished through me, before you teach them what it looks like to be one of my followers, before you launch the church, you need to wait because, and this is key to understanding what comes next, well, you don't have what it takes within yourselves to do what you're going to need to do. You don't have what it takes within yourselves to do what you're going to need to do. And as Jesus continues, he tells them, what, or maybe better, who, they're missing. Check this out. He says, for John, that's John the Baptist who baptized people in the Jordan River. Everybody went down to see John. You know, for John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And now, whenever I read something like this, I like to imagine, like, what did those first disciples think and feel in that moment? So they're standing on the Mount of Olives just outside the city of Jerusalem, having a conversation with their resurrected rabbi, and he tells them that in a few days they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And I think they would have been confused. Um, as children growing up in synagogue school, so Jewish kids in the Galilee would go to the synagogue to be trained and to learn the Bibles, their, their Bible uh, every Saturday, they would have been exposed to the Holy Spirit. The authors of the Old Testament describe the Holy Spirit as a sort of 
divine force of influence that is placed on and could be removed from certain individuals at certain times, including like many Old Testament heroes. People like Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon and Elijah, kind of like the heroes of the Old Testament, interacted with the Holy Spirit. But, but to the disciples of Jesus, like the idea that they would all be baptized in the Holy Spirit, I think that would have left them with a lot of questions. And their questions would have only grown as Jesus kept speaking, because here's what he says next. He says, you, and that's y'all, so it's a plural you, so if you're from the South, welcome. Y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the city where they were, and in all Judea, that's the region, and in Samaria, that's the region of the north, and to the ends of the earth. We have to understand, these disciples of Jesus had never left the country. And Jesus says, you're going to take this message, you're going to witness what you've experienced to the world. In other words, but, but not until you receive the Holy Spirit. Implication, my church will be built through your courage and boldness and passion and experience, but not just through your courage and boldness and passion and experience. The Holy Spirit is going to empower you, like from the inside out in ways that you can't even begin to imagine. And then moments after this conversation, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus leaves his disciples. And he like literally ascends into the sky, which you got to admit is pretty cool, right? And then they do what they're told. They go back into the city of Jerusalem to wait. And as they walk through the gates of the city that day, it had been almost six weeks since Jesus' resurrection, and a sort of frenetic energy had electrified the people of Jerusalem. I mean, not only were there rumors flying around everywhere that a miracle-working rabbi named Jesus had been seen alive again by literally hundreds of people after being crucified, but that the city was also in the final stages of preparation for the Feast of Pentecost. And so 10 days pass, and Luke tells us the following. He says, when the day of Pentecost came, they, the first followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. And if you're familiar with the story, you grew up in church like I did, you were probably taught that they were in an upper room somewhere in the city of Jerusalem. But what's interesting is since we learned that as children, the scholarship has really tipped on this because, well, a really influential scholar wrote, there's only one place the followers of Jesus would be on the day of Pentecost because we know that they were there every day and they certainly would have been there on a high holy day. They would have been at the temple in Jerusalem and because that was where the action was. And practically, that would have meant that they would have walked up the steps on the southern edge of the Temple Mount as the sun was rising that morning and they would have joined crowds near the temple in order to hear a shofar blast at 9 a.m., which announced the morning sacrifice. And a shofar is basically a Jewish trumpet. It looks like this, very majestic. I have one. I was going to bring it and try to blow it for you. I am awful at it. It sounds like, I'll just spare you, it sounds bad. It sounds like flatulence. Thank you, right? Yeah. And maybe I'll do that for you next week. We'll see. Anyway, as the echo of the shofar blast subsided that morning, a priest would have climbed up a platform near the sacrificial altar in front of the temple and read the same passages from the Old Testament that were read every year on the morning of Pentecost. And the mood would have been reverence. I mean, to the people of Israel, this was an incredibly holy occasion. 
commemorating God's steadfast commitment to and provision for his people. And given the history, it's not surprising that the first passage should be read at Pentecost each year included a description of what had happened immediately before God gave the Ten Commandments to his people at Mount Sinai, the moment when Moses went up the mountain and the presence of God came down. And that description is found in the Old Testament book of Exodus, and it reads this way. There was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, and everyone in the camp trembled. It said Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. I'm telling you, like that day on the Temple Mount, Jesus' first disciples would have listened with a profound sense of wonder. They would have had this passage memorized. But there, that day, in that place, hearing this account just had to fill them with awe as they would have reflected on the power and potential of the moment when their ancestors had experienced the presence of the living God. Well, that day, like as the words of Exodus reverberated out through the temple complex, the priest would have opened a second scroll. And this one is from the writings of a prophet named Ezekiel. He lived 600 years or so before the time of Jesus. And the selected passage again included a vision of the coming of the presence of God. Here's what Ezekiel wrote. He said, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. He says, the center of the fire looked like glowing metal. And I'm telling you, like Ezekiel's description of the presence of God would have left Jesus' first disciples completely awestruck. You have to remember the context. This was a description of the same God who had raised Jesus from the grave 50 days earlier. And they knew there was nothing that this God couldn't do. And as Luke continues his story, he tells us that it was this very moment after the reading of the traditional passages describing the coming of God's presence that it happened again. And here's what he tells us. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And it's interesting, to the Jewish people, the house is the temple. It's God's house. He says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In other words, there was wind again. And there was fire again. And, 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 and basically the Spirit of God comes on them in power. As I imagine it, the disciples, Peter, Thomas, Matthew, James, John, and the others would have looked at each other in stunned silence as it dawned on them that something new, something unprecedented was taking place. Something that, as it turns out, had been well worth waiting for. Like God's presence was coming again, but in a way that no one could have imagined. And now in an instant, everything changed. As Luke continues, he tells us that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And just and kind of a fun fact, the word, word uh, spirit in Hebrew is the same word for wind. It's like Holy Spirit, Holy Wind. In Hebrew, it's Ruach HaKodesh, which sounds like I need a decongestant, right? Yeah. Holy Spirit, Holy Wind. The wind blows and the Spirit, the Spirit comes. 
Luke goes on, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. He says, now there were saying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And that's, that's fascinating. Like we had said, they, they were told to gather and they gathered. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not these men who are speaking Galileans? In other words, Galileans, they didn't travel. They were people of the book. They knew the text, but they hadn't traveled the world. Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? It was a miracle. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? In other words, the Holy Spirit filled those first disciples and empowered them to do something that they could never have done without him. And, and consequently, Jews from all over the ancient world heard the news of Jesus' death and resurrection in their native tongues. It was unprecedented. It was powerful. Something new had come. And, and not one to miss an opportunity. Peter, who was the oldest disciple and definitely the most impulsive disciple, uh, seized the moment to deliver a sermon in the temple courts that day that in a very real sense launched the church. And it's long. And I tried a lot to cut it down and just show you a couple sections. I decided just to summarize it, okay? So this is my summary of what he said. It isn't exactly what he said. It's sort of bullet points of what he said. So Peter, addressing the same people who had demanded that Jesus be crucified, said this. <clears throat> you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. Okay, you can read it later for yourself. That's what he said. You killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Say you're sorry. And, and what's undeniable, and this is interesting, you're like, well, how did the people respond? I'm so glad you asked. Peter's message came through loud and clear. Here's what Luke tells us. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't just for them. This is for everyone. He goes on, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So Peter looks at me and says, what do you do? Well, you need to acknowledge that you did what you did. And you need to turn away from your sin. And you need to publicly align yourself with Jesus. And what he accomplished on the cross by by being dunked in water. And then he says, then you will receive a gift that will empower you to live a life that isn't possible any other way. A life lived under the guidance and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. And, and I know, um, you know, this passage raises all sorts of questions. It does for me as well. But I'm telling you what's undeniable is that God leveraged the events of this day to capture people's attention. And in fact, Luke tells us, and this is just stunning, he says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I'm a church guy. Can you imagine the chaos if 3,000 more people all of a sudden showed up? Our nursery would be in nuclear meltdown. I'm telling you right now. Yeah, right? Like, but imagine it. Days and days and days, people are being dunked in every body of water they can find in and around the temple complex. The city of Jerusalem would have been turned completely upside down by people proclaiming to their family and their friends, we believe. And before we go any farther, I just, I can't help myself. I have to share just one really incredibly relevant historical footnote. Because you're going you're gonna to love this. 
Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the Ten Commandments along with the physical provision of food. And due to the disobedience of the children of Israel surrounding the giving of the Ten Commandments, the author of the book of Exodus tells us that on the day the Ten Commandments were given, check this out, about 3,000 of the people died. In other words, the era that was launched by the giving of the Old Testament law began with the death of about 3,000 people. And the era that was launched by the giving of the Holy Spirit began with about 3,000 people placing their faith in Jesus. Isn't that incredible? I call it like a drop the shofar moment. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and I know what some of you are thinking, because I have these conversations as I'm writing during the week, like, I wonder what people will be thinking. So here's what I think you're thinking. Something like this. Okay, that was fascinating, but what exactly does that have to do with followers of Jesus today? And it's a great question, because I think it has everything to do with followers of Jesus today, people like you and me, if you've crossed the line of faith in Jesus. And let me explain why. Um, I'll begin by noting that one of the primary messages that I take from Pentecost seems to be the powerful affirmation that Christianity is not a self-help movement, and it never has been. And, and now, to be fair, the version of Christianity in which you were raised may have made it seem like it was. Like you would go to church and listen to some guy or girl like me, get up on stage and do talks about what you needed to do and stop doing in order to fix your life. And they identified that, you know, the fundamental problems that you're really having either come from a lack of information or a lack of discipline or both. And so if you were going to be serious about following Jesus, you needed to get more information in your head through books and podcasts and seminars and conferences, and or you needed to change your life by just simply doing what you knew that you needed to do. In other words, Christianity is kind of like a self-help movement, but it's not. And if that flavor of Christianity that made it feel like it was a self-help movement was a part of your past, then you should know that though information and discipline can be incredibly helpful in growing to look more like Jesus, the idea that you naturally have within yourself everything that you need in order to be who God designed you to be simply isn't anywhere in the New Testament. Instead, what you find like over and over and over again is an invitation extended to followers of Jesus to surrender to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Because as it turns out, just like the Holy Spirit empowered those first disciples to do something they could never have done without him, the Holy Spirit offers followers of Jesus today the potential to change beyond our natural abilities to do so. Said differently, like instead of offering us more information, he actually offers us intervention. He wants to partner with us in recreating us in the image of Jesus. It's an incredible invitation that's open to all who believe. In fact, and I love this, check out how Paul, an early pastor, encourages Christians along these lines. Here's what he writes 2,000 years ago. He says, since we live by the Spirit... Let us stay, keep in step with the Spirit. He's like, you've got the Spirit in you. And the Spirit is prompting you. I mean, sometimes you ignore Him long enough, you don't, like, don't hear Him anymore. It's background noise, and you need to repent and start hearing Him again. But you live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Like day by day, moment by moment, step by step, the Holy Spirit invites people who have placed their faith in Jesus to follow Him. 
And so Paul writes this letter to challenge these early Christians. He says, listen, because you've accepted what God has done for you when Jesus died on the cross, I want you to lean into what God wants to do in you through the Holy Spirit to do something in you, like to empower change from the inside out. And it's, it's how you can activate all sorts of wonderful divine potential in your life. And that's amazing. And that's, there's something there for all of us just to consider, like, what's the next step for me? What's the Spirit been telling me to do? And I maybe have been pushing him off, or he's been telling me long enough, I don't even hear his voice anymore. What does it look like for you? That's powerful application. But, but as great as that is, I think there's something else that we need to take away from Pentecost. And it hit me this week, like, when, when you, once you understand the culture and the context surrounding the feast, you can begin to see something else that happened that day in the temple courts, and it's incredible. Namely, that in a very real sense, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, God came down as he had in the past, but unlike he had in the past, he came down and moved into a new temple on earth, and followers of Jesus are that temple. Let me say it a little differently. Just like God's Spirit lived in the tabernacle in the wilderness for 40 years following the Exodus, and this is a picture of a tabernacle replica, which we visited when we were there a few weeks ago. Super cool to kind of walk through and see what it was like. But they believe that God's presence lived in the Holy of Holies inside that back room of that tent. Just like the Spirit of God lived in the tabernacle for 40 years. And just like God's Spirit lived in the temple in Jerusalem, similar structure, back part, Holy of Holies, God's Holy Spirit dwelt there just like that in the time of Jesus. At Pentecost, God literally took up residence within followers of Jesus. And that incredible reality is clearly affirmed by Paul in the letter to Christians living in Greece. Check out what Paul says to them. He simply says this, we are the temple of the living God. And I'm telling you, the implications of that statement were and are stunning. Because in ancient times, people understood that if you wanted to see what a God was like, you would go to their temple. It was where you experienced their presence. It was where you experienced their character. In the case of, of the, the living God, it's where you experienced grace firsthand. And in the same way now, after Pentecost, God's plan now is that people who don't know him would be able to come to followers of Jesus, the new temple, to see what God is like, to experience a bit of his presence, to experience his grace firsthand through us. Because we are his people, filled and empowered by his spirit, blessed by him to be a blessing to others. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of other stuff seems to make sense. We are like a city on a hill reflecting the light of God to our world because we are his temple. And that, my friends, is the message of Pentecost. And I want to give us just a moment to, to sit in this. And, and so we have a special treat for you today. We're going we're gonna to sing a song together. The band's going to come out. And just to give you some time, either to, to, to put some words on your lips and reflect in that way, or maybe just reflect in silence on what we've just learned. And as I was writing this week, the song that just keep playing in my head was the song, King of Kings. And we've done it once here. You may or may not know it. It's been on the radio. But 
It's a beautiful song that celebrates the story of God as told throughout both the Old and New Testaments, just like the feasts fulfilled are fulfilled in Jesus, like the story of God is telling. It's one beautiful story of redemption. It, it affirms the reality that it's all connected. And so just in a moment, just begin to listen to these words, soak them in, and, and then at some point, um, Mandy's going to invite you to stand and just put these words on your lips and just praise the God who has moved mountains so that we could find peace with him and has called us to be his
pray with me? Heavenly Father, we celebrate you as the God of love, the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of hope. Thank you that 2,000 years ago you sent your Son as light in darkness to show us the way and then to become the way. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit which lives within us and empowers us to be more like Jesus. I pray that this week as we engage family and friends and as we approach the holiday, we would carry that sense that we are your temple. We are the hands and feet of Jesus and that people can look to us at our best to see just a little bit what you are like. So we bless you, we praise you, we celebrate you, and we thank you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. If you've come into this place and you would like to speak with someone, we'd love to pray with you. You can meet us right under the screen to the left. But otherwise, grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.